Dedication and Leadership, Chapter 5. The Story of Jim. Early in the last war, I was conducting a leadership training course for a group of communists in a London borough. I ended my last lecture in this series by saying that the Communist Party should take anyone who was willing to be trained in leadership and turn him into a leader. I stepped down from the rostrum, and there, awaiting me, was Jim. A relatively new member to the party, he was almost pathetically anxious to be turned into a leader. He took me up on the words with which I had concluded the lecture, and as I looked at him, I thought I had never seen anyone who looked less like a leader in my life. He was just about the most unprepossessing man I had ever seen. He was very short, grotesquely fat, with a flabby white face, a cast in one eye, and, to make matters worse, a most distressing stutter. I am not making fun of him. It is very germane to my story when I say that quite literally he came to me and said, Comrade, I want you to take me and turn me into a the leader of men. I looked at Jim, and I wondered how I was going to do it. Then I thought to myself, well, I told the class that we could take anyone who was willing to be trained in leadership and turn him into a leader. And here is Jim, pathetically anxious for me to do it. This is a challenge. So I set about the job. It will be observed that I had made only one qualification. This was that the would-be leader must be willing to be trained. This presupposes a certain attitude of mind, which Jim already had. It was, so far as I could see at the moment, almost the only thing I had to build on. The experience of the communists is that if you are going to turn a man into a leader, you must first give him confidence in himself. Jim, like so many others, but with more reason, had no confidence in himself and appeared to have no basis for it in any case. The second thing is that you must give him something to be confident about. This world is full of people possessed of an overdose of self-confidence, but with nothing to back it up. Despite what they may think about the matter, these are not leaders. One look at Jim was enough to tell me that he had practically nothing to be confident about, so he had to be given some basis for self-confidence. I told him, if you attend the classes which the party branch organizes and learn the things we can teach you there, we will give you the answers to all the great questions which trouble the mind of modern men. We will explain the universe to you so that you will come to see that since they are dialectical, the very laws of the universe operate, in this, operate on the side of the ultimate victory of communism. 
What we teach you will enable you to see the world through new eyes, recognizing the forces that make for change. We will give you a new approach to history, explaining the story of man in such a way that you will come to understand what the common people have been suffering and what they have been able to achieve throughout the ages. We will show you that there is a pattern in history, that the whole history of man has been building up towards the coming revolution and the victory of communism. This is the very essence of the historical and dialectical materialism which, in due course, we shall teach to you. When you learn this, you will discover that all progress comes from conflict. This means that you and the party engages in strikes and tenants' movements. When you participate in the class war, you are identifying yourself with this law by means of which change is brought about. You will not only work for change, you will understand the inner nature of change and man's ability to identify himself with those laws of the physical universe and of history by means of which change occurs. This means that you will not be acting blindly. You will make yourself the conscientious and willing instrument of a historical process. And you will know that there are others like you, millions of us all over the world doing the same. When the moment of opportunity comes here in Britain, you will be one of this minority, one of the few who, because of their understanding of these things, will be able to overturn this rotten old society in which we live, guide the people through the revolution and on to the building of a Britain which belongs to the common people and is part of a grand new world. As a consequence of that first pep talk, I set him on the road to achieving a new self-confidence. I gave him something to believe in, helped him to believe in himself. He undoubtedly had an inferiority complex when he came to me. It was not long, I imagine, before we had given him a messianic complex instead. What I had told him was reinforced at the classes which he attended he now believed in something. He had a goal and saw that he would have a role in its achievement. Before long, you could watch his personality unfold. After he had undergone some months of instruction, I had another heart-to-heart -heart talk with him. I told him that he was now ready to be a tutor and should prepare to go into this new form of work. He was terrified. What? Me? he exclaimed. I replied by reminding him that when he first joined the Communist Party, he, like so many others who had come to it, knew practically nothing about communism as such. He had come into it through one of its campaigns. I asked him whether he had learned very much in the past few months. He replied that he had. But the people who are just coming into the party as recruits know as little about communism as you did when you first came in, I told him. This means that on the basis of what you have learned, you now know much more than they do. The whole art of teaching is to know just a little bit more than the people you are trying to teach. If you have this, then you can get away with it. Moreover, if they ask you questions to which you do not have the answers, you must admit this. 
Tell them that you will give them the answers next time you meet them. Then go to your textbooks and find those answers. This is the way you will learn. By this means, I made him believe, that is, I made Jim believe, that Jim could do it. I persuaded Jim that he, an ordinary worker, very new to the Communist Party and with more than his fair share of physical and psychological difficulties, had something that the others hadn't got, and he therefore, and he therefore also had a duty to try and pass it on. Throwing him into tutorial work in this way was an essential part of his training as a leader. He had at once to begin to think in new terms. For months, ideas had been pumped into his head. Now he had to get some order into his thinking. He must, he must learn to formulate those ideas, then pass them on to other people in simple language, a language which those people could understand, first to a small group, and then later, I hoped, to larger ones. He was an electrician, a building worker employed on a building site along with many other workers. I did not send him off to teach dialectical materialism to nuclear physicists. Much more significantly, I sent him to teach a beginner's course, and the people he taught were ordinary building workers, like himself, drawn to the same building site. By day, they were so many building workers, together sharing the work and the mud and the inconvenience of life on a great building job. But at night, he became the teacher with his own workmates, sitting at his feet as his pupils. The whole relationship was changed. He had something which they had not. It was something they wanted, and it was to him, the man who, on the face of it, appeared to have so much less than they, that they had, that those construction workers had decided to turn to. This, of course, immensely increased Jim's confidence in himself and his self-respect. Jim's personality grew still further. If Jim was to succeed with his fellow construction workers, Jim had to understand sufficiently well what he had learned to be able to put it into their language. He had to get the ideas out of his head and into theirs. Jim had to become articulate. I am sure that when he began, he was terrified, but before long, talking to a very small group of people who knew less than he did about the subject under discussion, he found himself earnestly explaining to them and becoming articulate in that process. It is worth noting that before we put him in his tutorial work, we gave him a thorough training in it. So Jim was sent into the fight, prepared for it in advance. And of great psychological importance, he knew that whilst we had encouraged him to go into it, we had also taken the trouble to equip him for it. I left him to his tutorial work for some time. The reports which came to me indicated that after a nervous start, he was now making good progress, and those who passed through his hands genuinely learned from him what we wanted them to know. Thus, simultaneously, we were training a tutor, teaching beginners, and developing a leader. Then, one day, I went to him again, and this time suggested 
that he should do a public speaking course with a view to engage in the party's agitation and public propaganda. Again, he was appalled at the thought, but he knew nonetheless on the basis of his experience of tutorial work that he had unsuspected potentialities. So he went. We did not turn him into a great orator. We did not even entirely cure Jim of his stutter. Although, as he gained confidence in himself, this became modified and finished up as a noticeable but not entirely unhelpful impediment in his speech. It was often the case, when we put Jim up in the marketplace to address a public meeting, that he would get the sympathy of a crowd and hold it more easily than others who did not share his disability. It seemed as though an ordinary, fair-minded British crowd felt that if this man, who had so many excuses for not getting up on the platform and facing a hostile audience, was nonetheless prepared to do so, then at least he deserved a hearing. Once he had established himself as an effective propagandist and agitator, able to exert his influence over a crowd, I took him on to the next stage of his training. I told him that he ought never to drop either his tutorial or his street corner work but his real field of leadership lay elsewhere. So far, Jim's training had been in the direction of leadership in general. Now he must provide leadership in a particular sphere of activity, the one where he could be most effective and which was most naturally his own. There was no doubt about the choice. It would be within his own industry, on the job and in the trade union, particularly the trade union. It is a rule of the Communist Party that each party member must be a member also of his appropriate trade union. Jim was already, therefore, an organized trade unionist, but hitherto he had been an inactive one. Now, I told him, he must become active. He must take the qualities of leadership which we had brought to the surface into his local trade union branch. But just as we had prepared him for his tutorial work, then for his street corner agitation, so now we prepared him for his new form of activity. We did not throw him to the wolves, or, to change the metaphor, we did not send him into battle untrained and unprepared. For months he attended classes by way of preparation. Trade union history, trade reunion procedure, the history of the broader labor movement and of the working class. There, too, he learned the very vocabulary of the trade union movement. A group of hard-headed trade unionists soon suspects a man who appears suddenly on the scene, dominating the discussion with the quite obvious intention of grinding his own particular axe or riding his own particular or personal hobby horse. It is here, incidentally, that Catholics who in recent years have gone into the trade union movement have most frequently gone wrong. The man who simply forces his own beliefs down the throats of his hearers using, in this case, the vocabulary of the Catholic social doctrine class, not of the trade union branch, remains an outsider. If he only makes a contribution to discussion when some allegedly Catholic subject can be forced before those present, such as opposition to the proposed opening of a birth control clinic, or, as at election time, the need for a square deal for Catholic schools, is heard with little sympathy and deservedly so. There are plenty of self-educated men in the labor movement who know their trade union history as part of their lives, the great industrial struggles of the past, out of which present legislation and present attitudes grew, 
are deep in their consciousness. But the man who can get up and refer casually and convincingly to the taff veil judgment of 1901 or the Trade Dispute Act of 1927 or talk of the Triple Alliance and Black Friday is instinctively assumed not only to know what he is talking about, but also to be someone to whom trade unionism is truly meaningful in its own right. It is this that we gave to Jim. It was not long before he had one of the top positions in his local branch. Then he was elected to the area committee of his union and was also made a federation shop steward on the building site. In time, he became a national leader within his own industry. When he died a few years ago, his death was of sufficient importance to warrant a front-page report in the Daily Worker, and many of his fellow workers and trade unionists followed his body to the crematorium. Jim, the most unpromising-looking piece of human material that ever came my way, had become a leader of men. Jim's story says much of what can be said about the training of a leader as the communists see it. First, I inspired Jim, giving him the clearly defined goal of a new and better world and the belief that he and others like him could, between them, achieve it, provided that they prepared themselves sufficiently for the moment of opportunity. I gave Jim a sense of involvement in a battle and the conviction that by going to classes, Jim would gain the arms and ammunition required for the fight. The classes he attended were geared to his needs. What he learned was presented in terms which were understandable to him as a worker. The classes he attended were small ones. We shall come to this later. But this is of great significance. There, he was an individual in the intimacy of the small group. And despite his reticence, he was brought to make his contribution to the discussion. By making Jim a tutor, we gave him confidence in himself, enabled him to glimpse his own unsuspected potentialities. By making Jim a tutor, too, we made him think in an organized way, sifting what was relevant from what was irrelevant. He learned, because he had to, how to get the ideas out of his head into the heads of others. He was made articulate. We gave him knowledge which others had not got and an intelligently selected group to whom this could be passed on by training him, then putting him up to speak in the marketplace. And at the street corner, we showed him that he could influence larger bodies of people as well. We helped him to grow in stature. When we thus brought Jim before the public eye, as one of the party's leading local figures. Then we gave him specialized training in preparation for the sphere of activity in which he could be most effective, where there was the biggest job to be done and which lay nearest to hand. This, I believe, is a pattern which others might follow. Communism in practice is shot through with paradoxes. Here, in the case of Jim, as in the case of so many others, there is indeed a great paradox. The opponents of communism say that communism is the great enemy of the individual man, that communists think in terms of the masses, not of individuals, that human freedom and human personality are crushed by communism. Philosophically, all this is definitely true. This is true also 
of its practice, as demonstrated in the countries where communism rules. Yet, on the other hand, it is also conspicuously true that the individual members of the Communist Party who undergoes its training and its formation frequently blossoms as a personality. People who have been seen as failures by other organizations are frequently turned by the communists into successes. Men who have been bypassed or rejected by others, who seem too ordinary, too mediocre to be even considered as leaders, are shown by the communists to have potentialities of leadership. I can think of many elapsed Catholic communist who has told me that when he was practicing the faith, the greatest responsibility he was ever given was to help, along with others, to move the chairs in the parish hall for the father. Inside the Communist Party, he was made to feel that he had something better than that to offer, and events proved that this was so. I think of the old illiterate but intensely intelligent peasant woman in the Philippines who had left the Catholics to join Ecclesia Christi, a breakaway sect of recent origin. When I asked her why she had done this, she replied that when she was a Catholic, no one had ever given her anything to do. Now, as a member of Ecclesia Christi, she was out every night organizing small group meetings in the homes of the people in the boroughs throughout the area where she lived. The communists show confidence in the gems of this world where others ignore them. The communists demonstrate and practice all too frequently a greater faith than we Catholics do in the human material that God puts into our hands. No Christian can draw much comfort from this thought. It must be seen as a challenge. For the leadership training process, which I have described, is not inherently evil. There is nothing fundamentally unethical about it. There was nothing we did to Jim which might not have been done by others on behalf of a far more worthy cause. Thank right. you very much for attending the podcast today. This is Daniel Heat. I'm, I'm sitting in for Jared Bauer, and I've got Claire Mayo in the studio with me today. Yes, hello. Thank you for and joining I've also, us. I've also got Jared, who's sitting in for Michelle Schubert. Jared, how are you? I'm pretty good. Um, <laughs> there was a lot that struck me in this chapter. About the, about the reread or the original read? Upon rereading, and there were a couple of notes that I had made previously that confirmed what it was that I really liked. I see. Jared and I have been talking about his feelings on this story for years and mm -hmm. I haven't yeah. heard it change yet. So there's a couple of things about the story of Jim that make it hard. And in order for this story of Jim to work, we're going to be discussing something called the Dance Syndicate of Yakima. Mm -hmm. And I'm going to give you a very brief explanation of what it was. In 2004, a school in Zilla kind of went sideways. School dance went sideways. And I was asked to come in and teach swing dancing to the high school students there. And they were mostly juniors and sophomores. There were a few seniors as well. And one of them was Bennett Mayo, and another was Weston Argo, and another mm. was Chelsea Gardner, and another was Annie Green. And I did that uh, because I was asked to do it, and I came in and I just taught East Coast. Pretty straightforward. And then I taught aerials to the you know, Nine and Nelson and so on. 
And it was a huge hit. It was a surprising hit. And that was mostly because of the people that were there were already friends. And they drew in, and they, they were very dynamic personalities, you know, Weston and Chelsea in particular. And they just sort of drew people in. So they got, they got Bennett there. And that's a, good, that's a good thing to have Bennett around. There was a, a good number of people there that excelled at dancing. And that wound up turning into a swing dance on first Fridays in Terrace Heights. And I sat in a basement with my cousin, Ben Creech, Christina Ostrom, and Jacqueline Foster. And I said, I think we could disciple people with this. And I was thinking of dedication and leadership. Because I also looked at the people in the room and I thought, none of them are going to be comfortable with any of the stuff that I want to do. Um, because of dedica- because dedication and leadership is an uncomfortable idea. So it's a bunch of uncomfortable ideas. And the response in the room was, you go ahead and try that, but I'm just here to have a good time. And I had the pleasure of, of eventually running a small group. And the first small group that I ran was called Black Ops. And while I was running Black Ops, I had Dan Heed as a roommate. And I had Claire Berger as one of the... One of the originals? One of the originals. Acolytes. Yeah. I understood very few things, but I pitched a couple of ideas to them. And Dan and I would discuss what I was going to talk about the next day. I was very surprised at how successful Black Ops was. And so was everyone else. <laughs> and then I, I turned to a friend of mine at the time, a guy named Oren, and said that I was running a second small group. I turned around and ran a second small group, and that, that one was called Sam's uh, Bunching Unitards because we're really bad at naming things. And it, uh, I wound up handing it over to my friend Oren, and it kind of went up in flames. Like it, it was a bit of a disaster at the end. It started off really strong and ended in, in hot mess. And Oren said, I kind of don't know what you did. Or how you did it. And I said, oh, good point. And then I did small group on small groups. Question. Uh, When did uh, Expendables come into play? Was that before or after? Or during? That was after. um, That was after I ran small on smalls. Okay. And then there were a whole bunch bunch of them after that. The big big standout being the Misfits might have been given Black Ops a run for the money in terms of influential mm-hmm. um, members. Anyway, um, so that's the backstory on this. So when we, when we circle around to the story of Jim, we're going to be discussing syndicates and we're going to be discussing different small groups. Dan wound up running a small group or two or three and Dylan wound up four. Wow. And then he also ran small on smalls for me, which I was very grateful for. And they study in small on smalls. I teach people how to run small groups and this is a cornerstone of that curriculum um and uh it's not complete by itself i i always go over hopkins which is one of the footnotes in the podcast i also go over the moral imagination which is one of the footnotes in the podcast and we would work with our young people in order to train them and i have the story of jim in mind if someone was willing to be trained we wanted to be available to train them, even without the giant apparatus of the Communist Party. 
we would kind of limp along and figure it out as we went along. And a lot of that was without a major church, without any facilities that were steady, and without any budget to speak of, we still managed to limp along and train people. So that's the context of this. And so it's difficult to discuss the story of Jim without doing a whole bunch of references where a lot of people who aren't familiar with the culture are familiar with the curriculum from small group on small groups. They're going to get lost in the weeds real fast. So I'm outlining that and I'm letting the, the listener know that that's the history. So the, that was the history of something called the Dance Syndicate of Yakima or the syndicates. And as it relates to the story of Jim, the story of Jim is a difficult story because the first time I heard it, I'm like, yeah, I was about 18. And I said, wow, that's so true. We can make anybody at all a leader Mm. as long as they're inspired and Mm -hmm. as long as they have self-esteem. And then I got into it and I started doing it and I discovered something very quickly. Self-esteem is not a problem. Jared, you said something incorrect, so I'm going to correct you. What you said is you read the story of Jim, you were really excited, and you believed that you could teach anyone with self-esteem. That is not what Douglas Hyde said. He didn't say self-esteem. He said self-confidence. Self-esteem is thinking that you're great. Self-confidence is knowing that you are great at something. And there's a very, very big difference. Because self-esteem is actually, we call it self-esteem now. Oh, we don't want to hurt the child's self-esteem. You know what self-esteem, the biblical word for self-esteem is? Pride. God rejects the, pr- the proud, and he, and he gives grace to the humble. So self-esteem is shit. Confidence in Christ, okay, like, and then confidence in Christ breeds self-confidence. Self-confidence is totally fine. A man who has spent 60 years at his craft and can build a beautiful work of art has reason to be confident. A man who is trained at his trade and spent time at it has reason to be confident. A man who knows the depths of his depravity and the Savior who has reached into hell to grab him out of it can be confident. Self-esteem is shit. So, sorry, like, anyone who has self-esteem, great. That just means you haven't fallen on your face enough. <laughs> um, so that's, that's my first correction, is it's not self-esteem, it's actually self-confidence. The story of Jim is... An excellent look at how to make a leader. It remains one of the best essays on how to actually create leaders. Jared and I have a long-running discussion about how to create leaders, and one of my go-to sources is Axioms by Bill Heibel. And in one of his chapters, he says, hire tens. Go out for the people who are going to blow the doors off of what you want to do. Get the people, the high performers, get the really, really effective individuals who are too good for you, who are most likely going to say no. Get them and then be the kind of leader that they will follow. It's the people that are way too busy. It's the people who have way too much going on. It's the people who could easily charge three times the salary that you could give them. And so our human tendency is to look at a James Mayo, for instance, and say, he is a busy guy. He's in way too high of demand. He's got way too much going on. I'm not even going to ask him. So I actually cross him off my list. And then I go down the list and I well, Okay, I would love Jim Myers, but, you know, same thing. Jim Myers is just, he, I can't get Jim Myers. So I cross him off the list. I'm like, but I think I can get, and then you and then you write a name, and then you go after that person. So Bill Heibel says, you never say somebody else's no for them. And he, he tells the story of he met a very high-functioning businessman for coffee, and this guy was making six figures a year. And Bill Heibel said, hey, we can't offer you anything close to what you're making. 
I doubt that this is as challenging as your current um, climate, but I think that you would be a rock star in this capacity. Will you please pray and consider about joining our church in this area? And this gentleman said, I felt like the Holy Spirit was calling me away from the job that I'm in right now. I would love to be a part of your ministry, and that's exactly what I'm going to do. I don't even need to pray about it, but yes, I'm in. So the entire point is, you never say somebody else's no for you, for them. And you actually believe that the Holy Spirit is bringing people to the function. If you are in the will of God, God is going to bring the people. If you're outside the will of God, that's another story. And we can get into the whole weeds of, well, you know, people aren't coming, are you in, blah, 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 blah. That's, that's immaterial to the discussion. And, but it, it, there, it, this is an important point, because we had very good success, especially early on with our, with our small groups. Mm-hmm. And... Part of it was we were recruiting some of the best. Yes, I mean absolutely. we we had a mixed bag. Mm-hmm. We had a mixed bag. We definitely took a few risks along the way, but the assertion has been made that we were hiring the good potential. Like they they weren't leaders at that moment. No. Th- now this is an important caveat because if I come in and I say we hired the, the ten leaders, that is not true. They were not leaders, but we were courting people that were physically fit, had social skills, already had a network, knew how to dance on some level. And almost all of them were Christians. Like we weren't dealing, we weren't going out and recruiting hardline atheists or, you know, whatever. With two wooden legs. Yeah. Bill Hybels talks about this. He says that there is leadership and then there's also leadership potential. And he said, you don't always know what somebody's potential is. And so they might have a leadership potential score of 10. They might also only prove to have a leadership potential of four. That might be their actual leadership ability. He said there are a couple of different ways that you can come around that. And this is the synthesis of the story of Jim and Bill Hybels' higher 10. I don't actually think there's a conflict here. In the story of Jim, he tells this story, and he's approached by Jim. Uh-huh. Not the other way around. That's correct. And Jesus called the 12 disciples, and in a, in a couple of cases... One of the disciples in particular sitting under a tree, and his, his friend comes up and says, Hey, follow me. We found the Messiah. And then that guy goes up to Jesus. Actually, he says, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? He goes and sees Jesus anyway, and Jesus has, he basically proves his credentials and says, Hey, I saw you when you're sitting under the tree. Wow, you're the Messiah. Hold on. You're going to see a lot more than that, bucko. Yeah. So it's a both ends. You did not call me, but I have chosen you, is what Jesus said. And that is fair. And in the story of Jim, Jim approaches. Douglas Hyde. So it goes both ways. I'm okay with that. The reason I bring that up is Bill Hybels talks about the 12 disciples as lame ducks. He says people like to talk about the, the 12 disciples as though Jesus picked losers. He didn't. Mm-mm. He picked 12 men who changed the world, excepting Judas, who also changed the world, but also not so much for the better. <laughs> but they became dynamic dynamos who changed the world, who 90% of died for their faith and, and you know they, they are accredited as saints for a reason. So, Bill Hybels maintains that Jesus did hire tens, but he hired tens where we didn't know they were tens at first. But after the Holy Spirit is indwelling them, these people show up on the scene and people say, where did these people get their learning? Aren't they simple fishermen from Galilee? And Bill Hybels makes the point that they were with Jesus, and that made the difference. So, they had a leadership potential that was unknown at the time, except by their creator. The creator knew exactly who they were when he called them. And when they first show up on the scene, these guys are these guys are goobers. <laughs> and we actually see Peter fall on his face as many times or more than he gets him at runs. And you know, we, we you know very classically, he he walks on the water like he walked on the water. There's only one other person I could think of 
that did that. And then he fails. And he he says to Jesus on the night that Jesus was betrayed, even if everyone else betrays you, I'm going to go with you all the way to the end. And then fast forward six hours, and he's like, I don't even know Jesus. Yeah. Jim comes to Douglas Hyde, and Jim is a lame duck. He is grossly overweight. He has a speech impediment. He has a cast to his eye. He's just... He's, uh, he's a hot mess. Yeah. yeah. And Douglas Hyde is trapped by his own promise. Communism can take any individual and turn them into a leader. And then Jim says, okay, I want you to make me into a leader. And so what we have is we have a breakdown of how to make leaders in the most brilliant way possible. If churches did this, we would be churning out disciples and apostles. That's what would happen because the Holy Spirit is a living, active, amazing, creative force that can change the world. So, Douglas Hyde says, It will be observed that I had made only one qualification. This was that the would-be leader must be willing to be trained. Right off the bat, leaders must be humble enough to recognize that they do not know. I've met a lot of people with their heads so far up their butts that they could not be trained. There was one individual who came to me and said, I want to be in your small group. And I said, why do you want to be in my small group? He couldn't give me a good answer for that, and he couldn't dance with a darn. No problem. Like, that's why a small group exists, is to teach people how to dance. The problem is he was convinced that he was one of the best dancers. Mm. And I had a a very frank conversation with him. I talked about this in a previous podcast. Okay, how would you rate your skill? Oh, I'd rate myself as a 7 or 8 out of 10. Okay, I would rate you as a 3. And a very large portion of that small group was spent attempting to convince him that he sucked at dancing and he is an okay dancer now he's never going to be great because he is convinced that he already is well and that's exactly what jared was saying was that you can't train people who are proud you Mm -hmm. can train the humble yes so the first point is that if one would lead they must be willing to be trained i underline that that's back and forth and I'm speaking to every single person here. If you want to be a leader, and you know, I think of David Voris as a great example. If I look at David Voris 10 years ago, David Voris did not want to be a leader. <laughs> and so I'm speaking to a couple of you guys out there who don't yet know that you want to be a leader. Yeah, utterly devoid of ambition. Yeah. He was a 10 when I asked him to be a part of my small group. I stand by that. Do, I re- just, do you remember him 10 years ago? Yes, absolutely. No, okay. you didn't know him 10 years ago. He wasn't around not, 10 years ago. No. I know what he's saying, though. Okay. I knew him. Stop lying. Before. Okay. Before he was who he is now. Right. I knew him. Yeah, yeah. His next point was, the second thing is that you must give him something to be confident about. So you, first of all, have to give him confidence in himself. Like, you're not a garbage individual. And this is what we did with David Voris. We actually gave him confidence in himself first. And then we said, no, here's what you can be confident in. You can be a really good dancer. The kid has metronomic time. He can't lose time. He's actually, as it turns out, a, a freakish adding machine. Like he can just, his, his math is phenomenal. And it translates into dancing. There's actually a very strong correlation. People who are good at math are good at dancing, which is why I've had so much trouble. <laughs> um, so the conflict that we run up against here is that I don't have all the hours in the day. Mm-hmm. And I want to cultivate as many people as I can. It's like I said, the, the, the arrogance or, or the proud are untrainable. Mm-hmm. And weeding them out is such a ruthless procedure. You have to be kind, but you also have to tell the truth. No, you don't. Vigorously shaking no, you don't. All you have to do is you have to give them magazines or newspapers to sell on a street corner and they will weed themselves out <laughs> because they're too good for it. Dan, mm-hmm. 
Tell me about your position on newspapers. I don't think that they need to be newspapers, but having something that is degrading, menial, hard work, and as I'm going to talk about in the next section, something that brings conflict, Mm -hmm. something that is adversarial, Mm -hmm. something that puts people into the fire is of extreme importance. But I'm not sure, I'm not persuaded that we ever did that. We have done it now. We haven't done it with the Dan Syndicate. Okay, so the Dan Syndicate did not do the story of Jim? Correct. And why didn't we do that? Well, I can say why I didn't want to. I had one small group that was largely forgettable, and I was afraid of losing anyone. There were a couple of people that I got the sense were trying to bail out, and I moved this thing all over the place to accommodate them and keep them in the, in the group. And the first time I started getting any traction with a small group was when I started being like, my goal is to lose the chaff. My goal is to get rid of the people that aren't going to be here in three months. My goal is to get rid of the people that aren't going to see this through. And so I started making it harder. So you could say that with the gentleman thieves, I did put them into places where it was pretty uncomfortable. And with the money badgers, again, I actually asked big things of them where I'm like, yep, figure it out. Good luck. Go. But even so, I still never had them go into a public school and start preaching Christ, have them go into an abortion clinic and start talking about abortion. Never, I never had them go and pick it outside of anything that any of our immoral everyday injustices. I never had them do so, anything like so that. So a casual listener, and there's like two of them, but <laughs> sure. the casual listener who's, who's listening to these podcasts is like, what the heck? Why are you jumping around here? Uh-huh. All right, so here's, here's the thing. Tie it together. The Dan Syndicate was focused on something that was a, a fundamental to breaking away from what wasn't working in, in the Christianity I grew up in, mm-hmm. and that was we sit around and we read books and we argue about theology and then we go home. Yep. Mm-hmm. Instead, it was, you will now put on a, an actual physical skill uh-huh. and a whole bunch of sub-skills that are necessary in order to succeed, and that includes social skills uh, as well as just regular old-fashioned physical skills. Yep. And so training them in a practical skill became a priority. Mm-hmm. In fact, it was, it was what we spent our time on. And that is the adversarial thing that you were making them do it. Unfortunately, the only places where we were encountering conflict was from the church, was from the body of Christ in our valley who said, dancing is immoral, dancing is a waste of time, they shouldn't be holding hands, you should be teaching them to, you should be teaching them about the, the Apostles' Creed and not about Hopkins. Hopkins was a Catholic, and you shouldn't be having that. So there was flack coming from the Pentecostal, Presbyterian, Protestants. I didn't hear much of the flack coming from the Catholics, although I have heard that there was some, I had some interesting go-arounds. But the point is, the only conflict we received we're from our allies. I agree with that, but it, the point that needs to be made here is I, I didn't put together a study group that studied the books the way that that's being outlined in dedication and leadership. Uh-huh. So this is a weird hybrid that I did with the syndicates. I said we're going to learn a practical skill because I was sick of doing theological stuff, yeah. which I'd spent all my life doing. Mm-hmm. So we're going to learn a practical skill. We're going to teach them something that they need, and then we're going to anticipate romance. Uh-huh. And so kind of moving that direction and, and building out that romance, which I think was... I think ultimately was the product, if you like. And then in the face of building out that product, establishing community mm-hmm. in the midst of that. And yep. so so what we did not wind up doing was what was described in selling papers uh-huh. as your initial exposure to the party. And then you didn't have the inductive training on this is what... Like, we did, like he talks about 
going through learning, I mean, at the later stages, learning trade union history back 100 years. Yeah. But in the middle stages, reading Engels, reading Marx, reading, I, like, I don't even know the other communist writers. The story of Jim is a sad one. It ends on a tragic note, although he, he paints it as a heroic note. Jim gave his life to communism. Jim mm. believed utterly in communism, and he became an expert in communism. And he could go to people and say, oh, okay, well, let me explain this in view of the dialectical materialism. Let me explain this in the view of the idea that history is one of conflict, and blah, 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 blah. And you can understand all of those lies that are attached to the ideology of, of communism, which is just frankly and inherently evil. Douglas Hyde makes a very good point in, in chapter one. Communists have the worst cause to fight for, but they create the best fighters. Christians have the best cause to fight for, and we're not creating fighters on par with Jim. And Jim, who was a lame duck to start with, went out like a lion. And this this speaks to something that was tricky for me, because when I first read Dedication and Leadership, first off, the church wasn't going to support me if I went out there and did anything, even the ones that were familiar with the curriculum, and you would think theologically would stand behind me. They were not going to do that. The second is that in order to interface with the Christians, I had to do something completely different. And Which you I've, did. I've matured a lot since then, so I've, I've, my perspective has changed on this. But it definitely was like, I know the people that I don't need, and those are all the people that I know. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's the deal. We brought in young people. We trained them. We had a measure of buy-in and success, and they matured at an accelerated rate, in my opinion. They often sought out women who were maturing alongside them and founded families. And in my opinion, every one of those has the potential of dynasty that's still solvent. And in the face of that, they then said, thank you very much. This was a lot of fun, and now I'm going to go. Bye. (laughs) And they would leave. Now, what happened was is when I took in the first, we had our first crop or two or three of this going on, but what would happen is they would get married and then they would go chase dreams, which we all supported because it was part of maturing. Like you couldn't just hang out here. That was that was going to go toxic in a hurry. You also made that a key point of the curriculum was don't settle for nonsense. Go out there and become great. Yeah, be 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 big. And several other things that went into it. Like the sandcastles. The sandcastle. The sandcastles. It was hardwired into our community. But I expected at least a few people to be excited about this as their calling and to see this grow and to replace me as a guy that runs a small group or to replace me as a guy who runs small on small groups or even to replace me as a guy who runs dances, for instance. And now, before we get into all of the the many failures of, of leadership, the thing that I found to be true was I was succeeding at not building a cult, essentially. <laughs> That's exactly where I was going with this. (laughs) You had some major, major trauma from your time in the cult. And one of the things that the cult did was they said, everyone is going to live here on the property in perpetuity with all of their children. And they're all going to be building this kingdom, the kingdom that the birds have built with them at the top. You're all going to be contributing to this kingdom forever. And their goal, their end goal was when everything falls apart, we are going to be the city on the hill. We're going to be the monastic temple that holds all of the knowledge. And when they are ready to rebuild America, go. you will go forth, my disciples, and you will rebuild in the name of Anne and Barry Bird. Mm-hmm. 
Now, here's the problem with that. And actually, I had this really, really great conversation. Shout out to Grady Hauger, who wanted to talk about the state of the world this afternoon. And I asked him, okay, what is the state of the world? You tell me what the state of the world is. Hmm. And he said, we are in clown world. The American economy, the American dollar, and the American government are going to crash and burn in 15 years or less. It will fall into anarchy. There will be a couple of players who will take the stage. Most of them will be bad. And it will come down to small communities of families living together to try and keep back the tide. I'm paraphrasing. It was a very long text and very well thought out. And I said, well, let me ask you a hard and intrusive question. Where is your faith in this? What does it look like with the body of Christ, spirit-filled, the great commandment and taking dominion? Where does it fall into this? And he said, well, ah, now here's, again, this is a, a rabbit trail, but very fascinating and extremely on point. He said, well, eschatologically, America doesn't show up in the book of Revelation. We're not there. And I said, that's very true. If you take a futurist view of, of Revelation, which I hold, BT dubs, America isn't in the book of Revelation. Or at least I hope we're not. He, he, he pointed out, like, I hope we're not Babylon in this scenario, because if we are, then we're screwed. I said, that's, that's very true. And then I actually gave him the link to, the, to this podcast and said, hey, give this a listen. And he got back and said, this is very interesting. Sounds like you're hanging out with some good folks. And I said, I am. And it's really fascinating to hang out with them because they hold a preterist view of Revelation. They're not, they're not waiting for Jesus to show up and fix everything. They believe that it's their job to fix everything until Jesus comes back. Mm -hmm. And he said, that is really fascinating and it's very helpful. He said, I imagine it would be very helpful to not have a T minus 1.5 years countdown always. That's always just resetting. Well, I guess God, Jesus didn't come back this year. Well, he's definitely coming back next year. 88 reasons why he's coming back in 1988. Well, the next year? 89 reasons why Jesus come back in Right. So th what's fascinating to me is there's this I, per very pervasive idea is that we cannot win. And there's a phrase that Alex Lakey loves, chaos breeds opportunity. And in the very bleak scenario that Grady Hauger projects, hmm. that's a whole bunch of chaos. But the funny thing is, it's not a one-sided or three-sided war. It's a war of everybody against Christ, and Christ wins that war. Mm -hmm. And empires have risen and fallen, and the American empire is not Israel. It's not guaranteed to go to the 10th generation or whatever. Someday this will come to an end, but it, it doesn't have to end quite like that. And the communists believe that they could change the world in their lifetimes. And that's a really, really valuable mindset to hold. We can change the world. It's it's biblical. Yes, absolutely. And so that's something that I, I, I said is, yeah, I really like hanging out with these people who aren't just sitting around waiting for Jesus to come back. They're trying to get things done. So the story of Jim and all of that good stuff. Like, I mean, sorry, you brought right into the collapse of, of civilization and the birds who, their mindset is, everyone get on our commune and wait for it all to go to hell so that we can bring it back. Here's the problem. What if it takes 20 years for everything to go to hell? What if it takes 50 years? What if, uh-oh, it took 500 years for the collapse to come? Well, unfortunately, you've gotten horribly inbred at that point because you never left the commune. <laughs> More to the point, they told you our dream is the only one that God will bless. You have to join in with us or you are in sin. And you actually refused to tell that to all of the disciples that you brought in to, that all of the disciples you brought to Christ, you refused to say that to. Yes. You said, whatever your dream is, pursue it. St actually, what you said is, if life was a video game, what would you be doing? Would you be working at Rite Aid 37 hours a week and then playing video games for the rest of the time, except for when you're sleeping? Or would you go out and do something grand with your life? And thank you for that. 
I, this is as near a quote as I can make. And this changed people's heads all the way around because they saw, like, if this were a video game, I wouldn't be afraid of losing. I would just go out there and have the best story possible. That's what you said. So when you say, well, I didn't create anyone who was doing my vision, you gave people the freedom to choose their own adventure, and they did. And that did not align with your adventure, and that's good. Claire's making a bunch of faith. I'm Claire, so excited. Use your words. I'm use your so words. I'm so excited at the way he's putting this, because like I was saying to you before, thank God and thank you for that, because otherwise I would be a sad, depressed, Sack. overly worked, bedridden Catholic mom married to some wimpish, probably emotionally abusive husband for the rest of my life and probably accomplish nothing and never actually be joyful and never actually feel like I'm worth anything. I, I, I realize that that's the case. I, I'm just scratching my head at the story of Jim because I never want to let myself off the hook on this. I know. As soon as you start letting yourself off the hook, right? That's a good thing about you. It, it goes sideways so hard. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've seen it happen in my life. So you don't let yourself off the hook with the story of Jim, nor do I think you should. But the story of Jim gives us a clear blueprint on how to create leaders. Intention plus mechanism equals result. And so if you are not making leadership, you have to go through your mechanism. What are you doing? And there are, there's some brilliant stuff here. Page 64, if I may. Please do. He says, he was talking to Jim, actually going back one page, 63. I told him if you attend the classes which the party branch organizes and learn the things we can teach you there, we will give you the answers to all the great questions which trouble the mind of modern man. Christians could do that. Christians could say, okay, you want to be a disciple of Christ? Awesome. You're in a three-month study group, and we are going to teach you sound and proper theology. Then he says, when you learn this, now this is communism, you will discover that all progress comes from conflict. That is key. That is huge. He says, all progress comes from conflict. Now that is false. Not all progress comes from conflict, but in a communist mindset, all progress comes from conflict. Conflict is needed to push forward progress. That's false, but as they say, there's there's a line by Sturgill Simpson, which I love. Peace is made out of compromise, but history is made out of violence. (laughs) So my entire point with this is Christians are actually conflict-averse. We are trained to be conflict-averse, and there are people who are conflict-averse and people who are conflict-drawn. And our church tends to stifle people who are drawn to conflict. And what we... Unfortunately, there's this, there are these verses that I've been thinking about. Be sober, be vigilant, for your adversary the devil prowls around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5.8 And then uh, one we all know, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. If we told Christians that conflict is the expected life of a, of a Christian, like you're signing up, okay, you have to understand— This is a life of conflict. This is a conflict between your flesh and the world, your flesh and the Spirit of God. Everything you want and everything that God wants, everything that the world wants and everything that Jesus says has to be. So when you frame it as this is a life of conflict, we are much closer to what the communists were doing. They taught all progress is a result of conflict. They were unfortunately wrong and going to hell, but they understood this. They did understand this fact. Conflict is necessary. Conflict is absolutely necessary to the life and body of Christ. Where would Christ be without conflict? Can you even imagine where we would be? We would all be going to hell, for one thing, if Christ had never engaged in conflict whatsoever. 
And he says, and you will know, and this is moving down the page, this means that you will not be acting blindly. You will make yourself the conscious and willing instrument of a historic process. And you will know that there are others like you, millions of us all over the world doing the same thing. So when you enter into communism and when you do the things that communists do, you can join in with the millions strong, the, the quarter million, the, the millions of communists doing this. Contrast that with Christianity. There is no sense of engaging in a historic conflict when we go to share Christ. There is no sense of this is what Christians all over the world are doing because by and large, Christians are not sharing their faith. It is a small population of Christians who, upon occasion and when pressed, share their faith. Now, of course, I am I'm I'm not trying to paint with an overly broad brush here. There are there are amazing apologists, there are amazing preachers, there are amazing people on the world stage today who do share Christ. And we know their names because there's that few of them. <laughs> so there is a theology that Jared, you brought me into, which was extremely important, which is the dominion theology. And I cannot go through dedication leadership without touching on the dominion mandate. And it goes back to the garden. God created Adam in a garden. And he said, Adam, name everything. And then Jared, when God created Adam, he put him in a, in a garden, and he said, Adam, what do you want to make? You were trying to drive home the fact that Jesus isn't going to show up and say, Daniel Heed, your job today is to get up. It's to put on your blue shirt. It's to drive down the block, 17, <laughs> yeah. 17 houses, stop there. Wait for me. I'm going to tell you which person to talk to, and then you're going to say the following phrase. Yeah. When you're done, you're then going to go to the store. You're going to buy some cereal. You're going to pick up Lucky Charms. I know you don't like Lucky Charms, but that's what you're going to pick up. Then you're going to go to the register. You're going to pay the. You're going to give them a tenner. You're going to. They're going to yeah. let them keep the change. Like God doesn't that's direct your be a life. Special moment right there. God doesn't direct tenor. your life. Now I've had people who say, "Well, if you just waited, God would." Mm. Uh huh. Yes. Yeah, I did that. Uh, yeah, I did that. I waited ten years for God to tell me who to marry. And then I realized, oh, okay, actually, I'm in charge. I get to pick. I pick Amanda. Talk to me, Goose. You're sitting there, and I said, dominion. Yeah. Dominion is not the dominion of man over all other men, per se. It's about dominion man the stewarding the earth yep. well. Yep. Go forth, multiply. Take dominion over the land and the sea. And we take dominion over the world in small ways and in great ways. Every time we, we find a cure for a virus, we are taking dominion over a virus. Every time we create a new and amazing prosthetic for people who are born without limbs, that's taking dominion. Every time we overcome the evils of the world that were introduced because of Adam's sin, we are taking dominion back from the devil. We are, t we are doing what we were created to do. We were bringing all of the world into alignment so that it glorifies God Most High. This, this speaks to something that was addressed in an earlier chapter, which is to fight evil. Yep. And so you, so I do not maintain that, well, you know, God gave us everything to get over any kind of illness, and we shouldn't get vaccinated at all. I don't agree with that. No, that's silly. No. God gave us the ability to create science yep. and mm -hmm. medicine. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's part of stewarding creation. Yeah, and you, in order to take dominion over it, you actually have to learn about creation. And so we have to... We have to, <laughs> to we don't go to space because it is fun. We go to space because it's... The world is part of the world. Actually, outer space is part of the dominion that God gave us. It's an ever-expanding domain. And our job is to bring it into alignment with God Most High and to give Him glory through it. And so when you understand that, when you actually get down into the grit of what dominion mandate means, it means go forth and take dominion. Multiply, be fruitful, and take dominion. And then this is the fascinating thing. This is where people get caught up. This is where I got caught up. 
It was never rescinded. In fact, after the flood, God gives the dominion mandate to Noah again. And he says, okay, the rules have changed. The animals, they're going to be eating you now. You get to eat the animals too. This is something that wasn't like this before. However, go forth into the world, be fruitful, multiply, and take dominion. Actually, you can read about that in Genesis 6, where God restates the dominion mandate. And now a lot of people say, well, Christ gave us a new mandate. It's to go into the world and make disciples. Right. It's an addendum to the original mandate. Now, as you go, actually, a lot of pastors say it's as you go. So that implies you're already going. Now, as you go, make disciples of every nation. And so it, it, it's actually a really cool thing where if you, if you read it hermeneutically, God is saying, remember how I told you to go take dominion? Great. Now make disciples too. Make converts. Baptize them in the name of the Father, yep. the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Which is way more fun. Yes. Like there, there's an element of romance when we couple the two. Yeah. But here's the problem. There is no blueprint for your life. There is no... There is no, <laughs> there is no narrow path for your life. Oh, there's a narrow path, all right. And it's find Jesus. And then? Okay, great question. After you find Jesus, you have to get married and have kids if you are called to that. If you are not called to that, do not do that. Or decide not to be married and live in singleness and be happy that way. Either or. Yeah, Those are your two celibacy, choices. Celibacy, Celibacy, yes. Accurate. Accurate. <laughs> <laughs> so, Phil posted on Facebook, Phil Ostrom. What, what four words would you say to yourself, to a young Christian? What four words would you say to a, to a young Christian? He said, start a business. <laughs> and I said, buy a home, have a family, like either or, like start taking dominion, whatever, whatever it is you want to do. Uh, yeah. So the problem with that, coming from Catholicism to this brand new dominion mandate, there are no rules, or rather the rules are the same ones. Thou shalt not murder, thou shalt not covet thy neighbor's ass, thou shalt not commit adultery, thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not bear false witness. Mm -hmm. Those are the rules. Mm -hmm. And it encompasses all of life, mm -hmm. But there's no, thou shalt go to Mass every single Sunday. Sorry. Why are you saying sorry to me? I'm not I'm sorry. Catholic. Uh, look, I'm actually Dan sorry. Dan said sorry, and then he like took both of his hands and gestured, like, towards gestured me. at Claire. The, the reason Catholic. I say sorry to Claire is because this was a challenge for Claire when she left Catholicism. The safety rails were gone. That's true. Claire, uh, rebuttal. No, he's correct, but I'm not anymore, so I took it personally. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Essentially, the rules have been boiled down to... Walk like Christ, be like Christ, give your life to Christ, give everything to the glory of Christ. That is true, though, and because with Catholicism, there are way more borders. It's just like when you're at the bowling alley and you put up the, you know, the kitty yeah. gates. Uh, those are bumpers, and those are not just for kids. Sorry. <laughs> the bumpers. For kids Catholicism is essentially, they have bumpers everywhere, and that's yeah, nice, and it's comforting, yeah. it and it's comforting. structured. It and, and they have a clear metric on... On whether you're a good Catholic or a bad this one. It's getting loud in here. Catholicism has the bumpers, which, you know, is easy and it's nice for anxiety and blah, 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 which is why a lot of people are Catholic, actually. I have a friend who literally says she's still Catholic just because going to Catholic Mass helps her anxiety. Literally the only reason she's still Catholic. And in Protestantism, there is so much more freedom, which is scary. Yeah, freedom sucks. And this is the same problem that the that the Israelites had coming out of Egypt. They didn't know how to be free. Mm -hmm. And so God actually had to give them rules so that they could be free. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. Oh, mm -hmm. anyway. So the dominion mandate is thou shalt, is thou shalt find Christ is the dominion mandate. Thou shalt find Christ and live. Mm -hmm. That's it. 
So, I don't have a problem with your converts not supplanting you because you trained us not to. You you actually created us to not take your place. Because I'm so power hungry, I wanted to control everything. So, I couldn't hand it over to anybody? Yes. <laughs> no. You were afraid that you would create a fiefdom with you as king. Wow. After he had undergone some months COVID. of instruction... I had another heart-to-heart with Jim. I told him that he was now ready to be a tutor and should prepare to go into this new form of work. All right. So this is something that is extremely important, and it is very salient to Christians. Why were Christians saved? Well, there's a whole variety of reasons. Because God loved you, and he you know, reached down, he formed you before the creation of the world. We were saved for a purpose. We were not saved to be safe. And I absolutely have to get rid of that idea that we were saved to be safe. No one was saved from hell so that they could be safe. They were saved to save. God was creating a nation of lifeguards and the world is drowning. He created disciples so that they could disciple. And this is this is fundamental and this is why Christians turn out bad leaders or very few of them because we don't disciple to disciple. We don't create people who are also creating. We don't save people who are saving. And so that's that's one thing that I that I have to absolutely flat out say we have to do this. We have to prepare them for their new form of work. And in the story of Jim, that's right at the front of the mind. Yep. The most success I saw in a small group was when I had my small group start teaching people how to dance. And there were a couple of times when I I, I mean <laughs> I love to pick on David Vorce because he's a great success story. Mm. This is a guy who could not articulate his thoughts publicly because of a lack of self-confidence. And now he's dynamite. I'm, I'm, I'm waiting for him to surpass me. It, it's a coming. I remember this one night when there was no one to teach a lesson, and I said, okay, David, you're teaching this lesson. I could watch all of the color, the, the bright pink color, just wash away from his face, and he turned chalk white. And he's like, I, I'm not, I don't know if I can do it. And I was like, I, I know you can do it, but it's immaterial because you're going to do it. Now go do it. <laughs> <laughs> and it was rough. It was rough, his first lesson. It was not... No, it wasn't wasn't elegant. No, but his learning, like his dancing improved after that moment because he suddenly realized, okay, these these are the gaps in my knowledge and his uh, teaching improved vastly. Absolutely. Now, I can think of many a lapsed Catholic communist who has told me that when he was practicing the faith... The greatest responsibility he was ever given was yeah. to help, along with others, to move the chairs in the parish hall for Father. Inside the Communist Party, he was made to feel that he had something better than that oh. to offer. Oh. And events proved that this was so. Oh, we're moving right along. That hit me hard. This is right to the point of Wyman Hate Going to Church by David Moreau. The Communists for better or worse, and in this case worse, kept their people busy, and they gave them what inf- what felt like important work to do. Contrast that with anything that the church asks its lay people to do. And when I say the church, I'm including Catholicism, I'm including Protestantism, I'm including, including B- Greek Orthodoxy. What are you asking your lay people to do? Because if it's just show up one Sunday a year to clean the church or to fix the building, it ain't enough. And, and I completely agree, and I'm going to go off on this for a yeah, second. Yeah, please. One of the things that I found to be particularly powerful, enlightening, all right, and yeah. which which I don't like to use that word because it's totally new. What are you talking about? Um, 
is that when I when I interact with people, they have a trend. They have an, an intrinsic ability to tell if it's legitimate work or if it's busy work. And they have this sort of internal test kit that they break out in a split second and they they sort of measure it. They're like, okay, this is a five or this is a two or this is a minus three. And they can just tell. They can tell if this is mission critical or if it's not. And some of what I found to be the most compelling when it comes to the story of Jim, specifically um, as it relates to my work with young people, is when I gave young people um, the knowledge that I had about identifying or at least letting them in my internal conversation as to how I identified what we were doing as mission critical, then the buy-in was phenomenal. So in, in Black Ops, which, which was terribly important, the inner ring of friends, and I'll, I'll do the inner ring another day, who were running the dance syndicate had rattled apart because Chelsea Gardner had died in a car accident. And I had asked Black Ops to basically build a new knot of friends, brand new, and to be that inner ring with each other. And, that out, and then I explained how that inner ring is attractive to other people and it will explode your, your dance scene. Explode in the best way, by the way. And they did. And they didn't have to. They did it because I let them in on the problem. I showed them what was at stake and then I, I said, now we have to do it. So that's one side of the coin, and it's an extremely powerful one. And um, I don't have a problem with scut work. Scut work is extremely valuable. And we actually talk about... When you say scut work, what does that mean? Something that is completely non-mission critical, something that does not matter in the slightest if it succeeds or fails. Okay. Like, as a for instance, selling newspaper on the corners. As we've already established, the point was never to sell newspapers. So having scut work, having work that is demoralizing and breaks a person down is very, very valuable for creating leaders. And actually what I'm going to refer to in, in pop culture is Fight Club. There's a scene in Fight Club where there are these people who are applying, trying to get into the inner circle of Fight Club, and they're turning the guys away, and they're like, it's only the people who like sleep on the porch and who go through this degradation before they're in, and then suddenly they're in the inner circle, and then they're part of the master plan. Yeah. And so churches have no problem with scut work. We create tons of scut work. And scout work can be extremely valuable. That's how I found David Voris. He was willing to move speakers every week. There were other people who could have done it, but he was willing. The problem is, we tend to, and I'm including myself in this, we tend to not have the powerful, mission-critical stuff to give people. We aren't usually doing anything that matters. And so people will do scout work for a period of time. And you can weed out the flakes really easily with scut work. You can break them down, or you can bring them to a place where they realize that they don't know enough. This is actually one of the key functions of basic training. I'm going to pivot onto you then here, Claire, for a second. Your experience of <laughs> stacking chairs for father, right? All right, so you go from that mm -hmm. to me saying, all right, we're going to build a dance scene. Talk to me about the contrast between those asks. Yeah, when you were talking about that, it, it hit me. It, it struck deeply because this is something I've been talking about for years, mm. especially when we were making that video about describing the syndicates mm. for potential 
investors. Mm-hmm. The difference being, before it was, I didn't really, I didn't matter. It was just, you know, you were a good Catholic girl. Mm-hmm. You know, you, you do what you're told. Yeah. I'm going to marry a nice Catholic man, have yeah. a bunch of babies, raise them, be a good wife. And that was the extent of my purpose. Mm. When I joined the syndicates, when I joined your small group, when I was actually given big things to do, I in and of myself was valuable. I was powerful because God made me that way. Mm-hmm. And like Dan was saying before, the difference between scut and actually big important things to do, which mm-hmm. the scut is important. It is. Yes. It's, 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 it's the, the stuff you got to do in order. Yes. To, yeah. But in joining syndicates, I was told I was shown mm-hmm. The value and power and worth and strength and uh, leadership abilities I already had. I just wasn't being shown it. Yeah. It was do what you're told, be quiet. Mm -hmm. And then you are Claire. God made you. You are powerful. These people should. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. Bow down to you. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Bow to her. Bow. <laughs> All right. No, I. But so so you have this experience, and then it, it's transformative for you. And you know, it's funny. Holly Holly had a similar experience that she expressed to me as well. And I was like, "Holy crap! This Holly chick, she's really knows how to get things done, and she's mature. She's intelligent. She's on yeah. point. I really really respect her." And she's virtuous on top of all of this. Like, like I really like this this mm-hmm. person. Also, she's got a keen sense of humor, which I like. Very rare. I really like that. So I'm interacting with Claire, and I'm like, wow, she's a really good dancer. <laughs> and I thought she was just Miss Nicey Nice Nice. I'm going to have to drink all this syrup all the time when I'm around her. And then as I'm interacting with her, I'm like, holy crap, she's taking all these risks and being super vulnerable. And I'm even uncomfortable now. I, I hope she doesn't try to hug me. <laughs> and and then I saw you start leading. Mm-hmm. It was so simple for you to just kind of shrug into that. It was astounding to me because it wasn't a power trip ever. It was just, I just want to teach you how to dance. Mm-hmm. Because the more people that dance is better. Also, I have fun teaching dance, it turns out, which is not common. And and my experience around that was was that I was incredibly encouraged because I had no idea who you were when you came around. You know, I barely you were some girl that you know, one of one of the girls that James had a crush on this week. <laughs> you know, and you had it, no idea how powerful I was. Yeah, and I had you know what's no funny? Idea. Neither did I. <laughs> so there's something you just said that I I want to key back into because it's actually very um, I I love it. You once gave a workshop on how to teach how to dance. Mm-hmm. And I don't remember the, the young lady that I was in the middle with. And we had to teach a move that everyone knew. That was, that was the exercise. And we had to explain how to do it, and we had to walk through it. And you're like, okay, I can't hear you. You have to let her talk. There was real-time coaching, which is big. And if you go to Bill Heibel's book on leadership, real-time coaching is very, very important for creating leaders. But here's the interesting thing. You were actually teaching us how to articulate how to dance. Mm-hmm. And Douglas Hyde says something on page 66 that is right to this point. He says, leaders must be articulate. I get hung up on articulate. Well, I guess you have, I confuse articulate with eloquent. Mm-hmm. And that is yeah, not the same yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah. It's really not. It's really mm-hmm. not. And so a lot of Christians, a lot me, I used to think, well, I'm not, I'm not eloquent, so I, I can't be articulate. 
And that's not the point. What he says is you have to get the stuff that's in your head out into your mouth so that your audience can understand it. That is what articulate means. And you gave us a class on how to become articulate at teaching dance. And you can actually apply that to all spheres of leadership. If you want to be a leader, you have to become articulate. You have to know it. You actually have to know it. If you don't know it, you shouldn't be teaching. So you do actually have to know it, and you have to work it out, and you have to explain it to the lowest common denominator. Explain it to kindergartners. Mm -hmm. And when you can take your ideas and explain it so the kindergartners can understand it, you are articulate. You can be a leader. I see these people who try to explain these really high-concept ideas, and they're not able to break it down into simple terms. And Einstein said, if you can't explain it simply, you don't understand it enough. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually the challenge because a lot of people who can articulate the gospel well think that they can't because they confuse articulate with eloquence. Yeah. And I once heard a prayer by Paul Washer, which was amazing. He opened his sermon, which you know cut me to the core as Paul Washer's sermons do. He said, to hell with brilliance, to hell with eloquence. God, let me speak the truth. And that's, that's, that is brilliant. That is the simplicity of the gospel. To hell with brilliance, to hell with eloquence, let me speak the truth. And that requires articulation. Mm -hmm. And I regret that we're going to have to wind this thing down. The dedication and leadership is fundamental to changing the world. Mm -hmm. As a Christian, as we approach this curriculum, um, you have got to take it, and then you have to figure out how to use it. And I yep. hope you take that away from this. We took dedication and leadership, and I've tried to do it as directly as I could. But in truth, at whatever point in time you're at, take what you've got and do it. I got out of a ton of, of busy work that Christianity had to offer, stacking chairs for decades mm -hmm. and, and, and playing in worship bands. And the only thing I knew how to do was East Coast Swing Dance, which is the bottom of the barrel when it comes to social dances. Okay. According to us. Yeah, according to us, according to the Lindy Hoppers. So that's what I'd used. Like it is, it was very, very, very simplistic. That I didn't have an incredibly valuable thing. I have a lot more to offer now than I did at that point in my Except life. Except for time. <sighs> if you want to create leaders, read the story of Jim. So let's go ahead and and spend a second. And we know Dan has notes, so, oh, so we're going to have to. So gonna, Wait, did you say nose, you bastard? <laughs> he has lots of nose. <laughs> <laughs> it's way out there. Um, hey, your nose is normal. It's just the rest of you is the rest of your face is small. Thank you. That's the nicest thing anyone has ever said to me. Yeah. Okay, hold on. Kay. What does your tattoo on your arm say, Claire? The tattoo on my arm says "An Unwritten Life." And that's in Latin. No. Oh, okay. It what just, it what does it mean? It's from the Brothers Bloom, you ignorant swine. <laughs> Do not cut that, Did Kate. Did that guy direct uh, Last Jedi? <laughs> oh, 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 yes, he did direct The Last Jedi. All right, Dan. 
cause an aneurysm. For it's me. actually called a danurism. <laughs> <laughs> he has this vein that gets all <laughs> squinchy right on top of his forehead. <laughs> it's a giant forehead. Um, so I'm going to close in prayer. God, please give wisdom in Jesus' name and have mercy on me, a fool. Amen.